The following is the Women's Liberation Music Hour, presented by Phoenix on WLRN. Welcome back, sisters, to another hour of Women's Liberation Music. I'm Phoenix, and it's May 27th, 2019, so-called Memorial Day under patriarchy. This is a day which marked the beginning of summer for me as a little girl, and I was taught that thus we ladies could finally wear white. Also, it's a day that war heroes are celebrated. Interesting conjunction. Not sure I understand all those pieces. But since now I wear white any damn time I want and know about patriarchy's true war on women, I thought it fitting to honor one of my favorite war heroes, radical feminist Andrea Dworkin. In the background to my reading of her 1978 essay, which she wrote and published in Letters from the War Zone, You hear Kitka and their 1999 album called Nectar. For many reasons, I chose this music to weave with Andrea, namely because Andrea's work informs and inspires mine. While Andrea is not at all sweet like Nectar, her truth-telling attracts me, stirs me, and pushes me to continue my work in the name of women's freedom. In 1975, Andrea spoke of her love of women at a lesbian Pride Week rally, saying that women are, quote, the soil in which my life is rooted. That soil, women, femaleness, nurtures and sustains my commitment to staying alive in spite of living in the war zone. So here is Andrea's essay called A battered wife survives on this Memorial Day. Enjoy, blessed be. Andrea begins this essay with a quote by Emily Dickinson. I knew not, but the next would be my final inch. Emily Dickinson. In a few days, I will turn 31. I am filled with both pride and dread. The pride comes from accomplishment. I have done what I wanted to do for more than any, do more than any other thing in life. I have become a writer, published two books of integrity and worth. I did not know what those two books would cost me, how very difficult it would be to write them, to survive the opposition to them. I did not imagine that they would demand of me ruthless devotion, Spartan discipline, continuing material deprivation, 
visceral anxiety about the rudiments of survival, and a faith in myself made more of iron than innocence. I have also learned to live alone, developed a rigorous emotional independence, a self-directed creative will, and a passionate commitment to my own sense of right and wrong. This I had to learn not only to do, but to want to do. I have learned not to lie to myself about what I value, in art, in love, in friendship. I have learned to take responsibility for my own intense convictions and my own real limitations. I have learned to resist most of the forms of coercion and flattery that would rob me of access to my own conscience. I believe that, for a woman, I have accomplished a great deal. The dread comes from memory. Memory of terror and insupportable pain that can overpower the present, any present, cast shadows so dark that the mind falters, unable to find light, and the body trembles, unable to find any solid ground. The past literally overtakes one, seizes one, holds one immobile in dread. Each year near my birthday, I remember involuntarily that when I was 25, I was still a battered wife, a woman whose whole life was speechless desperation. When I was 26, I was still a terrorized woman. The husband I had left would come out of nowhere, beat or hit or kick me, disappear, a ghost with a fist, a lightning flash followed by riveting pain. There was no protection or safety. I was ripped up inside. My mind was still on the edge of its own destruction. Smothering anxiety, waking nightmares, cold sweats, sobs that choked on were the constraints of my daily life. That I choked on were the constraints of my daily life. I did not breathe. I gulped in air to try to get enough of it each minute to survive a blow that might come a second, any second later. But I had taken the first steps. He had to find me. I was no longer at home waiting for him. On my, 26, on my 25th birthday, when I had lived one quarter of a century, I was nearly dead, almost catatonic, without the will to live. By my 26th birthday, I wanted more than anything to live. I was one year old, an infant born out of a corpse, still with the smell of death on her, but hating death. This year, I am six years old, and the anguish of my own long and dreadful dying comes back to haunt me. But this year, for the first time, I do more than tremble from the fear of even me- I do more than tremble from the fear that even memory brings. I do more than grieve. This year, I sit at my desk and write.
Rape is very terrible. I have been raped and I have talked with hundreds of women who have been raped. Rape is an experience that pollutes one's life. But it is an experience that is contained within the boundaries of one's own life. In the end, one's life is larger. Assault by a stranger or within a relationship is very terrible. One is hurt, undermined, degraded, afraid, but one's life is larger. A battered wife has a life smaller than the terror that destroys her over time. Marriage circumscribes her life. Law, social convention, and economic necessity encircle her. She is roped in. Her pride depends on projecting her own satisfaction with her lot to family and friends. Her pride depends on believing that her husband is devoted to her, and when that is no longer possible, convincing others anyway. Her husband's violence against her contradicts everything she has been taught about life, marriage, love, and the sanctity of the family. Regardless of the circumstances in which she grew up, she has been taught to believe in romantic love and the essential perfection of married life. Failure is personal. Individuals fail because of what is wrong with them. The troubles of individuals, pervasive as they are, do not reflect on the institution of marriage, nor do they negate her belief in the happy ending, promised everywhere as the final result of male-female conflict. Marriage is intrinsically good. Marriage is a woman's proper goal. Wife-beating is not on a woman's map of the world when she marries. It is quite literally beyond her imagination, because she does not believe that it could have happened, that he could have done that to her. She cannot believe that it will happen again. He is her husband. No, it did not happen, and when it happens again, she still denies it. It was an accident, a mistake, and when it happens again, she blames the hardships of his life outside the home. There he experiences terrible hurts and frustrations. These account for his mistreatment of her. She will find a way to comfort him, to make it up to him. And when it happens again, she blames herself. She will be better, kinder, quieter, more of whatever he likes, less of whatever he dislikes. And when it happens again, and when it happens again, and when it happens again, she learns that she has nowhere to go, no one to turn to, no one who will believe her, no one who will help her, no one who will protect her. If she leaves, she will return. She will leave and return and leave and return. She will find that her parents, doctor, the police, her best friend, the neighbors upstairs and across the hall and next door all despise the woman who cannot keep her own house in order her injuries hidden, her despair to herself, her smile amiable and convincing. She will find that society loves its central lie, that marriage means happiness, and hates the woman who stops telling it even to save her.
The memory of the physical pain is vague. I remember, of course, that I was hit, that I was kicked. I do not remember when or how often. It blurs. I remember him banging my head against the floor until I passed out. I remember being kicked in the stomach. I remember being hit over and over, the blows hitting different parts of my body as I tried to get away from him. I remember a terrible leg injury from a series of kicks. I remember crying, and I remember screaming, and I remember begging. I remember him punching me in the breasts. One can remember that one had horrible physical pain, but that memory does not bring the pain back to the body. Blessedly, the mind can remember these events without the body reliving them. If one survives without permanent injury, the physical pain dims, recedes, ends. It lets go. The fear does not let go. The fear is the eternal legacy. At first, the fear infuses every minute of every day. One does not sleep. One cannot bear to be alone. The fear is in the cavity of one's chest. It crawls like lice on one's skin. It makes the legs buckle, the heart race. It locks one's jaw. One's hands tremble. One's throat closes up. The fear makes one entirely desperate. Inside, one is always in upheaval, clinging to anyone who shows any kindness, cowering in the presence of any threat. As years pass, the fear recedes, but it does not let go. It never lets go. And when the mind remembers fear, it also relives it. The victim of encapsulating violence carries both the real fear and the memory of fear with her always. Together they wash over her like an ocean, and if she does not learn to swim in that terrible sea, she goes under. And then there is the fact that during those weeks that stretch into years, when one is a battered wife, one's mind is shattered slowly over time, splintered into a thousand pieces. The mind is slowly submerged in chaos and despair, buried, broken, barely alive in an impenetrable tomb of isolation. This isolation is so absolute, so killing, so morbid, so malignant and devouring that there is nothing in one's life but it, it. One is entirely shrouded in a loneliness that no earthquake could move. Men have asked over the centuries a question that, in their hands, ironically becomes abstract. What is reality? They have written complicated volumes on this question. The woman who was a battered wife and has escaped knows the answer. Reality is when something is happening to you and you know it and you can say it and when you say it other people understand what you mean and believe you. That is reality. And the battered wife, imprisoned alone in a nightmare that is happening to her, has lost it and cannot find it anywhere. I remember the isolation as the worst anguish I have ever known. I remember the pure and consuming madness of being invisible and unreal, and every blow making me more invisible and more unreal as the worst desperation I have ever known. I remember those who turned away, pretending not to see the injuries. My parents, dear God, especially my parents, my closest female friend next door, 
herself suffocating in a marriage poisoned by a psychic, by psychic, not physical violence. The doctor so officious and aloof. The women in the neighborhood who heard every scream. The men in the neighborhood who smiled, yes, lewdly, as if they half looked away, half stared. Whenever they saw me, my husband's family, especially my mother-in-law, whom I loved, my sisters-in-law, whom I loved, I remember the frozen muscles of my smile as I gave false explanations of injuries that no one wanted to hear anyway. I remember slavishly conforming to every external convention that would demonstrate that I was a, quote, good wife, that would convince other people that I was happily married. And as the weight of social convention became insupportable, I remember withdrawing further and further into that open grave where so many women hide waiting to die, the house. I went out to shop only when I had to. I walked my dogs. I ran out screaming, looking for help and shelter when I had the strength to escape with no money, often no coat, nothing but terror and tears. I met only averted eyes, cold stares, and the vulgar sexual aggression of lone laughing men that sent me running home to a danger that was at least familiar and familial. Home, mine as well as his. Home, the only place I had. Finally, everything inside crumbled. I gave up. I sat. I stared. I waited, passive and paralyzed, speaking to no one, minimally maintaining myself and my animals, as my husband stayed away for longer and longer periods of time, slamming in only to thrash and leave. No one misses the wife who disappears. No one investigates her disappearance. After a while, people stop asking where she is, especially if they have already refused to face what has been happening to her. Wives, after all, belong in the home. Nothing outside it depends on them. This is a bitter lesson and the battered wife learns it in the bitterest way. The anger of the survivor is murderous. It is more dangerous to her than to the one who hurts her. She does not believe in murder, even to save herself. She does not believe in murder, even though it would be more merciful punishment than he deserves. She wants him dead, but will not kill him. She never gives up wanting him dead. The clarity of the survivor is chilling. Once she breaks out of the prison of terror and violence in which she has been nearly destroyed, a process that takes years, it is very difficult to lie to her or to manipulate her. She sees through the social strategies that have controlled her as a woman, the sexual strategies that have reduced her to a shadow of her own native possibilities, She knows that her life depends on never being taken in by romantic illusion or sexual hallucination. The emotional severity of the survivor appears to others, even those closest to her, to be cold and unyielding, ruthless in its intensity. She knows too much about suffering to try to measure it when it is real, but she despises self-pity. She is self-protective, not out of arrogance, but she but because she has been ruined by her own fragility. Like Anya, 
the survivor of the Nazi concentration camps in Susan Fromberg Schaefer's beautiful novel of the same name, she might say, quote, So what have I learned? I have learned not to believe in suffering. It is a form of death. If it is severe enough, it is a poison. It kills the emotions. Unquote. She knows that some of her own emotions have been killed, and she distrusts those who are infatuated with suffering, as if it were a source of life, not death. In her heart, she is a mourner for those who have not survived. In her soul, she is a warrior for those who are now as she was then. In her life, she is both celebrant and proof of women's capacity and will to survive, to become, to act, to change self and society. And each year she is stronger, and there are more of her. Yeah, 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 yeah
You are listening to WLRN.
When a newspaper interviewer asked Andrea how she would like to be remembered, she said, quote, In a museum, when male supremacy is dead, I'd like my work to be an anthropological artifact from an, an, from an extinct primitive society, end quote. She died in her sleep on the morning of April 9, 2005, at her home in Washington, D.C. She was 58 years old. I remember Andrea on this May 27, 2019, as a vibrant, powerful sister, leader, foremother, kick-ass woman. I don't know if she was a dyke or not. She could have been. But I remember her. I remember her because she never, ever forgot the war on women, particularly the most vulnerable of women, prostitutes, battered women, incest survivors. She was their voice as well as her own because she was them, all of that. Thank you, Andrea. I remember you, and I proudly continue my piece of the fight in this war on women that, sadly, is not extinct. We are still in it. White male supremacy is still alive. And so are you, my sister. You are alive in me, in the women of WLRN and the listeners of WLRN. Thank you, sisters, for tuning in on this Memorial Day. And this is my last uh, music hour for the summer. I will be back in the cooler months of the fall to carry us through the winter. So take good care and check out the archived music um, hours if you need to hear something every month. Okay, take good care. Fist high, chest up. Keep reaching for one another. Blessed be.